That was great. He just started playing this last weekend, too. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> We're in the third week of our December Christmas series that we've entitled Joy to the World. We're looking at uh, the hymn or the Christmas carol called Joy to the World, written by Isaac Watts. And uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the first verse, which says, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. We talked about the weight. If you would have been a person alive during the time right before Christ had come, you knew how long you were waiting for Messiah to come. You were not only bound spiritually because your nation was scattered all over the place and you knew you had a sin problem that needed to be dealt with, you also were, were in trouble uh, politically because you're, you hadn't been a nation for some 725, 750 years. And so you were waiting. And so this first verse, joy to the, Lord, uh, the world, the Lord has come, is very exciting to you. The second verse we looked at last week is joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. And we first talked about God is sovereign over all things. He is in complete control. That your joy, we'll see this in, right, in just a second, but your joy is linked into your view of how sovereign you think God is in all things. In all things. And then we talked about you let men their songs employ. I love that. I love um, that we sing that song, Come Ye Sinners. I don't know, that's ancient hymn, right? 300 years or something, but to, done to a modern, those, are great, those hymns have such great, great theology in them. This one too, let men their songs employ. Are you fighting for your joy? Are you employing, are you writing a paycheck to yourself to say, you know what, I need to, I need to rejoice. Are you fighting for that? Are you, like we said last week, are you getting outside of yourself and just looking at Jesus and not worrying so much about yourself all the time and losing yourself that's why I think movies have such an appeal, at least they do for me, because for two, two and a half hours, I can just get outside myself. That, that's not a necessarily a bad thing. But you can do that with the Lord, and especially just get outside yourself. And I hope you're doing that even this morning. You're just not really worried about yourself, and you're just focused on, on the Lord. This week, we're going to look at verse 3 of Joy to the World. It says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's not only good theology, it rhymes too. Huh? That's amazing. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. This morning I want, I want you to picture two images. First picture is a picture, let's just say, of, of you traveling along and this stranger comes to you and he says, hey, you know, why don't you come on inside? And so you come inside and you sit down in front of his, in his living room and, and you sit there and, and you go, wow, you know what, son of a gun, it's nice and warm in front of the fireplace and, and, uh, and you have just a t-shirt on and it's a day like today and it's cold outside and he says, you know what, you can have, you can have some of my, you know, you can have, I'm not wearing this sweatshirt, you can have that sweatshirt and maybe another, you have a pair of shorts on or something. I don't know why you'd be doing that, but you know, we're from Minnesota, you might be doing that. And he says, you can have a, you can have a, uh, you can have my uh, sweatpants or you can have some nice warm pants too. And so you're sitting in front of the fire and you got this warm feeling. That's one picture you can have. 
The other picture is this. You wake up, and it seems like you're, it's in a dream world. And you find yourself in the middle of a frozen lake. And you're just lying there. And you're cold. You're hungry. You're tired. You're completely confused. What am I doing here? You walk to get to the shoreline and, and now you're freezing and you realize, look down, you're wearing nothing more than a t-shirt and a pair of running shorts. You're not dressed for this. So you decide, I better start running. So you can see the shore. It's kind of a distant, off there you can see, but you start going for it. And it feels like it's about a mile or so. And so you start to trot. And then you start to get a little more panic because you realize it's, you know, it's 10 below. And I better, I better hurry up. So you start running and all of a sudden your heart starts to pound and it just turns out to an all-out sprint. And, and, and your breathing starts to get shallow and you start freaking out. And you think, my gosh, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And then just when you start to lose hope, you see something and, and it's a cabin. And you see the smoke coming from there's someone there. And you, you start to get excited. I, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. And you start running like crazy. And you can see it. You're getting closer and closer. And you can see the door. And you can see the windows. And son of a gun, you can see somebody moving. And oh, yes, yes, I'm going to make it. And just then you hear a crack. And you fall through the ice. It's a weak spot. And you fall. And just, what, just a second ago, it was complete joy has turned into, in a split second, into terror. And now... You try to get out of this, and everywhere you reach, it breaks. It keeps breaking and breaking. You can't figure it out. How'd this spot get here? And you can't, you can't get out. And finally, you get to a spot where it's not breaking, and you reach up, and you just, it's slippery, and you, you just can't get out. And hypothermia starts to set in. And, and you're just, you can't even find the breath to scream, and you can see the person in behind the window, and you still can't say anything, and you're, and you're starting to fade, and you're trying to get out, and you're, you're just, you're just about ready to go, and somebody grabs you. It's the owner of the cabin. And he pulls you out of the hole. Brings you all the way into his house. Helps you out of your wet clothes. Gives you some nice dry clothes. And seats you in front of that fireplace. Now, how do you feel about that person? Awesome. They're not just a nice person who came and did a cool thing for you and you get to enjoy the fireplace. This second story is, oh my goodness, I was at death's door. I mean, I was right there. My fear for us in America is we have that first view of Christmas. We have this view of Christmas that, oh, isn't that just nice? Isn't that cool that God came and forgave us of our sins? This hymn, this time, Joy to the World, says, No more let sins and sorrows grow. And then it goes on to say, Far as the curse is found. What I want to do for you this morning, and it doesn't sound like very much of a Christmas gift, but believe me, it's the best gift I can give you. What I want you to do for the next 20, 25 minutes or so of this part of the message is to help you feel like you're in that hole. See, we got a problem. If you don't get the problem, you won't really be grateful for the person who pulled you out of the problem. You'll just think, you know what? This is nice in front of the fireplace. Thanks for letting me in. The word there is curse, far as the curse is found. What is that all about? 
Uh, if you got that insert with you, there's an insert inside your worship folder. You can open up your Bible. You are going to take a joy ride through the Bible this morning. I, I, this whole series, I wasn't even going to do inserts. I'm not kidding you. We're going from Genesis to Revelation in one sermon. So, yeah, amen. You're getting your money's worth this morning. So, I gave you an insert so you can follow along. <laughs> Uh, we might need to leave a few popcorn trails here too. We're going from Genesis to Revelation in one message and we're going to look at the curse. Where did this curse come from? Where, what, what's our trouble? What happened? Genesis chapter 3. If you're familiar at all with the book of Genesis, the first two chapters about how God created the world. Chapter 2 goes more deeply into how God created Adam and Eve. No, no sooner does he create Adam and Eve, but chapter 3 happens. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Because God had told him, You can eat from any tree you want except from the tree in the, uh, the tree of, of uh, help me out, tree of knowledge of good and evil. He didn't say it was in the middle of a garden. Eve says it's in the middle of a garden. I said that. Uh, but um, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Now Eve adds that. God never really said the middle of the garden thing. Um, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, if you haven't figured this out, the, the serpent is the devil. You can see that all over scripture. The serpent is the devil, and he is tricksy. To be a good liar, you have to give somewhat of truth, right? I mean, it has to have some semblance of re reliability or that it would really happen. I can't just come to you and give you something that's totally untrue and you just wouldn't believe it. He says, you're going to know good and evil. True. But you're going to be like, God, oh, that's awesome. That's eh, a lie. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and how does she know? How do you know? She doesn't know it's good for food. She just saw it. Looks good, right? I mean, she has no. She's not like she's let a, a sirloin steak there saying woo hoo. Mm, mm, mm. She has no idea what that fruit tastes like. But but she's been convinced that it's good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also side benefit, desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was there with her. So don't blame Eve. Eve was, or don't, don't just blame Eve. Adam was right there. Adam was there. It says, who was with her? What was he doing? He's watching a football game or something. I said this in theology class last time. I've cracked that joke for years and years, and somebody finally said, how could they be watching a football game? They're only two people. <laughs> I had never thought of that before. <clears throat> She didn't raise it all that, you know, maybe televisions weren't even invented. That didn't matter, but. <clears throat> <laughs> then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid. Eh, this is such a ridiculous thing. They hid. It's like a pregnant woman hiding behind a signpost. Where is she? Where is she? I mean. <laughs> it's got an image. That gives you an imagery, doesn't it? And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. Now that's a new, that's a new emotion for Adam. Never knew that before, especially not of God. I was afraid of you. Because I was naked, so I hid. Oh, gosh. Fear, nakedness, and shame. And I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? Direct question, indirect answer. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some from the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? Direct question, indirect answer. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, and here it comes, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And here's the curse. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers he, this is a prophecy about Christ even, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit, ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. Death is part of the curse, folks. Death is not part of what it means to be alive. A natural part... Don't ever say the natural part of being, a natural part of life is death. It is not. It feels funny because it is funny. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God, oh my goodness, this is amazing grace. Believe me, I, I, there wouldn't even be any of this if I were God. There would just it'd be a very short Bible. It, it, it would end <laughs> right in verse 19. By this one, you know what? Next second thought, zot! It's <laughs> not what he does. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. That's awesome. That's awesome. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. That's also graceful. You may love your life right now. You may think it is the greatest thing. Let me tell you something. Two seconds in heaven and you'd say, Oh my gosh. Do not bring me back. You do not want to eat from the tree of life and live in this state forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. 
Okay, so that's guarding it. You can't go here anymore. I, I'm under the contention that from that point on, what has been the main purpose of life for, for all of us in some way, shape, or form is to get myself back into that garden. I'll do whatever I can to make myself feel alive and like I'm back in that garden. And God says, no, there's cherubim there. You can't go there. The ground is cursed. There's enmity, spiritual war going on between the enemy and us and our offspring. You know, us, we're the offspring of Eve. Uh, there's, there's a war going on. Our land is cursed. There's a curse on, on the world. We live in what we call the fallen world. So, does it get better? That's a bad start. That's a bad start to the Bible. Does it get any better? No. Just flip your Bible one page. Genesis chapter 4. The, the sons of, of Adam and Eve, in the course of time, verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked on favor, on favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the... Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? So somehow Cain and his offering, it wasn't with the right attitude or he wasn't, wasn't accepted. But if you do not do what is right, listen to this phrase, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. That's, that's what it's come down to now. We're only one chapter from where, where uh, Adam and Eve first sinned. And sin now is crouching. I don't know, hidden, tiger, crouching, whatever. It's ready to, it's ready to come at you. It's crouching at your door. Well, if you know the story about Cain, he gives into it. Kills his brother. If you read the rest of Genesis, it just keeps going like that on and on and on. If you read the story of Israel... Israel, you know, the whole thing about the Ten Commandments, you're familiar with the children of Israel and that and what went on and how they gave uh, Moses all this grief and, and the whole thing. Finally, they get into the promised land after 40 years of wandering through the desert and, and you think, well, haven't they learned their lesson now? And we go through this whole book of Joshua where they keep taking land after land after land. They've got the acquisition. They've got their land. Woohoo! We're there. You get to the book of Judges. You get, I just want to take you through a quick buggy ride through the, through the I mean quick, through the book of Judges. Judges, what it is is these, these series of people that come in, they call them judges, they're not like kings, they just come in and they're, they're kind of like rulers, they're not like judges, we think of judges like, you know, bang the gavel, but they're kind of like rulers. There's, it's hard to exactly count them, but there's about nine of them and it spans about 300 years, from 1400 to 1100 BC roughly. It spans all that time and let's see what happens, let's see how this evolves. Uh, Genesis 2.11 or excuse me, uh, Judges 2.11. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. The Baals are uh, uh, false gods, uh, gods of other nations. They just, they were, became pagan worshipers. Pagan worshipers. Be like, you'd be like you all leaving hope and, and going to, to uh, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say it. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. So, um, Judges 3.1, does it get any better? 
It says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. So now we're not just doing the Baal thing. We're doing the Asherah thing too, which is another type of God. It's on pole, whole thing. They got two things going here. Okay, well then this guy comes in, Othniel. Othniel comes in and, and things get better. And he's one of the first judges. And 40 years later, this is what's written about it. Judges 3.12. By the way, it's only five verses. It says, once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Whoop! There comes a foreign nation. They lose it. Well, then another judge comes by the name of Ehud. In, in Judges 4.1, 4, uh, he finally dies. This is after Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And this happens over and over. Judges come and they go. Judges 6.1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them the hands of the Midianites. Judges 10.6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, get this laundry list. They served the Baals and the Asheroths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of Amorites, and the gods of the Philistines. That's seven if there's only one per place. But if there's multiple gods at Aram, I don't even know how many gods it is. They're, they're like doing overtime on pagan worship now. They went from one to two to seven. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he's going to give them over to other nations. What's going to happen in that in Genesis or Judges 10.7. Judges 13.1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them in the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. But another, at the end of the book of Judges, about another hundred years goes by and they finally have David as their king. David, he's the best guy in the, in probably in the whole Old Testament. He's a man who is after God's own heart. And we saw even David wrestled with sin. He was an adulterer and a murderer. Ha! Best guy in the Old Testament, adulterer and a murderer. What does he say? What's his summary statement of all the history of the people so far up to that point? We're right around... Uh, um, 975 B.C. or so when he writes this. All the summary statement, and as he looks out over his kingdom and he sees all his people, what's his summary statement? Psalm 14.1. He says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are evil. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Oh. I'd like to be the king of that place. The curse is just going right through. Even to David. And he says, I'm one of the, I'm part of the problem. I'm not, I, I'm not even one of these people. We could spend a lot more time. If you went through the book of Isaiah, read the first 39 chapters. Don't do that, by the way, if you're down. Uh, first 39 chapters are just about how wicked they are and what God's going to do. 40 to 66 is hopeful. But first 39 chapters, you could read Jeremiah. Oh, my goodness. Jeremiah, just, it's Ezekiel, too. It's just, it's just enough. You get the idea. The curse has, has not only just started in Genesis 3, it goes in it like it multiplies. It just, it, it just keeps going all over the place. It keeps getting icky, and it's stuck to us. It's stuck like tar. You can't get it off. Now, that's the hole. That's the hole. How does God pull you out of it? What does God do about our curse problem? Romans chapter 5. By the way, I don't have time to really go into this today. 
I would encourage you to just take this home and just meditate on this puppy. Oh, man. Whole chapter 5, but particularly these verses. Paul's writing and he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death came through sin. Remember, you're going back to the dust, pal. And in this way, death came to all men, all people. Why? Because all sinned. You know, that could, you could take that two possible ways. You could take it that when Adam sinned, him being our representative, that, that we all sinned with Adam and we're all, we're all in trouble, we're all going to die because of that. That's one way to take it. Or you could take it that it's because uh, we all have by choice sinned, and which of course that's true too, but that's what got us into trouble. It could be one of those two ways. Let's keep reading and see which one it was. For before the law was given, that's the law of Moses now, sin was in the world. Sin was running rampant in the world, even before there was rules and regulations. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. You mean, before the time of Moses, which doesn't happen until Exodus, we got Genesis and half of the book of Exodus, all those people, why did they die? Why did they die? Sin wasn't taken into account because the law was, the rule book wasn't even made yet. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Guess what, folks? It's not only the sin that you have of your own personal choice. You got Adam's sin on you. It's what theologians call the original sin. You're stuck with it. it, it it's something that you're born with. Now, I, I thought of a great analogy this week. It actually came to me during theology class. And I'm going to give it to you free of charge. Here you go. Adam and Eve, of course, every analogy breaks down, so you're going to you know, rip on this one right away. But Adam and Eve are on the Titanic. Okay, There's a lot of problems with that already. But let's just hang with me, all right? Adam and Eve are on the Titanic. And they decide by sin, they make a choice. And because of sin, the Titanic sinks. And guess what? They're in the water. They're in the water. They're wet. They're completely wet. Now, Adam and Eve, forget the hypothermia thing here for a second because that doesn't fit. They're in the water. Every one of their children that are ever born are born in the ocean. They are. Every single one of them. On judgment day, you will be judged on whether or not you've ever been wet. Now, from time to time, from the wreckage, you might see something, uh, maybe, oh, there's a life raft. And you climb up onto the life raft. Woo! Yes! Yes! I'm dry now. I finally got dry. I'm out of this thing. And because of your own sinfulness, you hit another iceberg with the life raft. I know. Hang with me. But you hit another iceberg with it, and you sink. And you're wet again. You, by choice, have decided to go under the water. But you're going to get judged on that whether you've ever been wet. Have you ever been wet? Now, just a little side thing here to make the analogy fit even better. He's saying, well, what about Jesus? He was born, but he wasn't born sinful. Ah, here's the deal. Mary 
Mary was born in the water, but God said, Mary, go to the desert island. <laughs> Mary goes to the desert island, and Jesus lives his entire life on the desert island. Jesus is dry. <laughs> Jesus lives his whole life in dryness. He never gets wet, ever. Not by his own choice. Thank you. Amen. Now, you can copy the CDs. I want five bucks every time you use that analogy. That's a good one. Verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin. One sin. Adam's only. You could live your whole life and you still were wet when you were born. And brought condemnation. But the gift followed, and guess what? Many trespasses and brought justification. Ah, <gasps> that's pretty cool. I'm not just going to get dry, dryness and, and covered over from my original problem of being born into the ocean. I'm going to get many trespasses. All of my times of sinking, all the life rafts and wreckage I came up on and I got dry and I get wet again, I'm going to get forgiven of those too. Verse 17, for if... By the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace? If you're here this morning and, and you haven't done that, here's a great passage to do it on. You've never come to a point where you just say, Jesus Christ, take him. Take him to be your sin bearer. There it is. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was the condemnation for all men, so also the result... He's just really interesting. He was sitting in a restaurant once with a bunch of people talking about this. Talking about how sin is, and the curse is still around even though we as Christians don't have to give it, uh, it no longer, we're no longer master to it, whereas a, excuse me, we're no longer a slave to it, it's no longer a master. And he said this, he says, if a rhinoceros were to enter this restaurant now, there is no denying he would have great power here. But I should be the first to rise and assure him that he had no authority whatsoever. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> I think that's great. Power, rhinoceros. But he would stand up and say, you don't belong here, Mr. Rhinoceros. You can leave now. You see that? Power. Intense power. But no authority. Rhinos don't belong in restaurants. <laughs> Will we ever be free from the curse completely? Revelation, Genesis to Revelation, Revelation 21, end of the book. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth form, 
excuse me, and, and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Oh, great imagery. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Almighty God, down on a knee, wiping the tear from your eyes. Isn't that awesome? There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Why? For the old order of things has passed away. It's gone. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. In the next chapter of Revelation, the last chapter in the Bible, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life <clears throat> bearing 12 crops of fruit yield, yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Let me close by asking you a couple questions. Do you sense the whole? I hope you sense the whole. Some of you this morning are at a point in your spiritual journey where, where you're, you're in the hole. And this morning I want to give you an opportunity to say, Jesus, I want you to pull me out of this hole. Just a minute, I'm going to close in prayer. And you could right where you're sitting, you could just say, Jesus Christ, I want you to be my sin bearer. I want, I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my Savior. And I want to follow you. I want you to be my guide. I want to treasure you. That's all it takes is just saying, I'll, I'll receive that. I'll take that. What a great Christmas gift. Other of us in the room have done that. And we're sitting at the fireplace. And it's nice and warm. And the rhino enters the room. And we say, you know... I'm just sick of shushing this rhino away. I'm just going to make peace with the rhino. Have you made peace with the rhino? Or you declare war on the rhino? Let's pray. God, I just want to praise you. You lose nothing if you just leave us in the hole. You lose nothing. We lose everything. The radical kind of love that it took to come to earth, Jesus, to live a sinless life and to die upon a cross is radical. And I pray we'd feel that 
I pray that we'd be like those, that second analogy. We would view Christmas that way and not, not just that it's a nice thing, but that we're in deep trouble because the curse is far. Lord God, right now I pray for people in this room who, for the first time in their lives, realize that they are in the hole and they're drowning and hypothermia is setting in and they know that their sin is a major problem. Jesus, I pray right now that you'd communicate to them what it means to turn from that, to repent, to confess you as Lord. to believe in your finished work on the cross to cover their sin. Lord, I pray for people, you give them the courage, even right now, to make that commitment, to let somebody know that they've made a commitment for Christ today, that they're going to be a follower of Jesus, that you asked, that they asked you to come into their lives. And so, Jesus, I just ask you, you just blow us away by your goodness. Others of us in this room, God, have made that choice to stick out our arms and allow you to pull us out, and yet we're sitting in front of the fireplace and, and we have totally made peace with the rhino. We've said, ah, oh, it's just a little sin. It doesn't really matter. And God, we're, we're, we're robbing ourselves of joy and we're slapping you in the face every time we do that. God, it's just so wrong for us to do that. And so I pray, God, that you'd give us the courage to once again do battle against sin that so easily creeps into our lives. And look at what happened in Paul's life in Romans chapter 7. And he was doing battle with the evil that was all around him. And even some of it that was in him, working through his, the members of his body, as he says. God, in, in this room, I know there are people who are wrestling with sin. And I just pray for your victory for them. I pray that they would not give up, that they would hold fast tenaciously like a pit bull. They'd hang on to you, biting and hanging there for, for dear life, God. I pray for that. God, help us to not make peace. We're at war in this life. Lord God, help us to look at this Christmas as the way you want us to look at it, as, as the, the birthday of the man who saved our necks and nothing less. We pray this in Christ's name.